There are two texts this morning, really. One is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. So I'd like for you to turn to that Gospel, if you will. It's the third. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when you find that place, then we're going to take a left and go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Kings. And it's not going to be that hard to find because it's right at the very beginning. If you started in Genesis and worked to the right, you'd come to books like Joshua and Judges and Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, and you'd find 1 Kings right away. Haven't you? 1 Kings chapter 19. So you hold your place and uh, Luke 9, and then if you find 1 Kings chapter 19, we'll begin reading at verses, read verses 19 through 21, and then we'll go back to, to the Gospel of Luke and get verses 51 through 62. Okay, so he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Japheth, while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him. And he with, he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. That was the symbol of passing on the tart, so to speak, or calling him to become a follower or disciple. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen. He used the ox yoke as wood to, to build this fire and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Now the ninth chapter of Luke verses 51 and following. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he, Jesus, resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, 
allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, No one after, having, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. There is a time to let go of the past. There is a time to set our eyes firmly on the future. There is a time to make a firm commitment to a great cause and to decide once and for all that we are not going to turn back. All of these truths are wrapped up in this text. Jesus is in Samaria. Samaria is a part of that divided kingdom where centuries before Elijah and his protege Elisha proclaimed the word of the Lord to Israel. Do you remember when Jesus said to his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, Some say that you are Elijah, risen from the dead. There were similarities. Elijah was a great worker of miracles, and so is, so is Jesus. But there were some great differences. On one occasion, Elijah called down fire from heaven to, to destroy 50 men who had come to hunt him. Maybe that's what the disciples of Jesus had in mind when he came to a little village in Samaria and they were not granted hospitality. Lord, do you want us to, at this time to call fire down upon this village and destroy it? James and John asked. And Luke says that Jesus severely rebuked them and they went on their way. And as they were going, a man came up to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And perhaps Jesus, sensing his lack of sincerity, or maybe just because he wanted him to understand the consequences of that kind of commitment, said that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to stay, has nowhere to lay his head. And to another man he said, Come and follow me. And the man said, Let me go back and bury my father first. And Jesus uttered those troubling words, Let the dead bury the dead. And to another, another said to him, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you, but first... Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Seems like a, a legitimate request. As a matter of fact, when Elijah called Elisha to follow him, Elisha said, let me first go back and kiss my father and mother goodbye. And Elijah granted him the request. It seems, however, from Luke's gospel that Jesus is not as caring is not as loving as Elijah. For Jesus turned to the man who said, let me go back and say goodbye to my family and said to him, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now what do you make of all of this? Was Jesus too uncaring, too hard, too harsh in his calling men to discipleship? I don't think so. 
But I think emerging from this marvelous text that you have heard so often are some tremendous principles about discipleship, about giving your life to Jesus Christ. And the first is this, that a commitment to Jesus Christ is never to be taken lightly. A commitment to follow Jesus Christ is never to be taken lightly. A shallow, superficial commitment to Christ is no commitment at all. But I imagine if some of us this morning had to choose between Jesus and all of our many worldly possessions, between Jesus and the respect and admiration of our friends, between Jesus and our standing in the community, it would be a very difficult decision for us to make. But most, most of us have never had to make a choice like that. Most of us came to faith when we were children. It was the popular thing to do. Everybody around us was encouraging us to commit our trust to Jesus Christ. It seemed like everybody in our world believed in Jesus. On Sunday morning, especially near the end of the Sunday school year, our Sunday school teacher said something like this. Nobody's ever graduated out of my department who is not a Christian. I've always seen to it, I've always wanted everybody in my department to become a Christian before they promoted out of this department. And we thought, now I don't want to disappoint that sweet little lady. I mean, she's a wonderful person. I don't want to disappoint her. And besides, I don't want to be written up as the only sheer pagan that ever graduated out or promoted out of the second grade Sunday school department. And the preacher on Sunday morning would say something like this, it's not going to get any easier to follow Christ when you're older. And probably from the, from the very start, our trust was not simply in Jesus alone, but largely our faith was undergirded by the faith of the people around us. For after all, if everybody is believing, then believing must be the thing to do. It's like uh, cheering for the football team, like saluting the flag. It's like eating hamburgers. And so we kind of ooze into the Christian walk. We come to faith, most of us, without really sitting down to consider what giving your life to Jesus Christ really means. But there are some places in this world where that could never happen. There are some places today where to choose Jesus means that you would lose everything. It means that you would be ostracized from your friends, excommunicated by or disinherited by your family. It means to be fired from your job. It would mean, in some cases, to lose your life. And a shallow, superficial, flabby commitment to Christ will not survive under those conditions. And do I have to tell you this morning that the most dynamic, the fastest growing, the most powerful manifestations of the Christian life are lived in those places where becoming a Christian involves a clear and decisive choice with alternatives and options. 
You and I need to make a choice to decide to follow Jesus once and for all without ever turning back, and it's never too late to do that. Eldon Trueblood once said, there are a couple of insights that will shed some light on our understanding of the Christian cause. The first is that the most important conversion one can have is not a conversion from paganism to Christianity, not a conversion from cold to warm, but a conversion from lukewarm to hot, from a mild religion to one in which one's whole life is taken up and filled and compelled and constrained. And the second insight, he said, is that the most common usual place for that to happen, for that kind of conversion to take place, is at middle age. Now, if Eldon Trueblood was right in his, in his statement, he, he was saying this, that most of the people sitting in this audience this morning are at a position in life to make the most decisive decision they've ever made for Jesus Christ. I mean to sell out for Him. To follow Jesus Christ is not something to take lightly. The second truth of this passage is this, that Jesus always calls us to look forward. Even when He was teaching on the hills and beside the sea, even as He instructed His disciples to live one day at a time and not clutter up their life with needless worry and concern, even when He was answering their questions about faith and morality, the future loomed up in everything He said. He talked about the coming cross and the empty tomb. He talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell men. And He talked about the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. So that every, in everything he did and in everything he said, there was an awareness that the future is now. We are to be people who look forward and not back. We are to be people who live in expectancy and not reminiscence. For the biblical religion is not a sedative that lures us into an acceptance of the status quo. The biblical religion is a faith that dreams of a future. Now, some people are afraid of the future and they want as little change as possible. A group of people gathered around um, at the Hudson River to watch the uh, embarking of the first steamship. And in this crowd of people there was a man who was heard to say, they'll never get it started. But they did. And she belched and coughed and started moving down the Hudson. And the same man said, they'll never get it stopped. You know anybody that, sound, that, that, sounds, that sounds like? And Werner von Braun had just finished his lecture on how he believed that scientists would put a man on the moon and he made a mistake that some speakers often make. He gave an opportunity for them to ask questions. And a lady lifted her hand and to ask a question. He acknowledged it and she said, 
why don't you quit trying to get people on the moon and stay home and watch television like the good Lord intended for us to do? Some of us just are afraid of the future. The uncertainty of the unknown bothers us. But it is in the future where Jesus is. When those women came to that empty tomb, came to the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus, they were lamenting the sadness of the past and they were grieving over the grief of the present. And the angel said to them, Why, the Lord is risen, and He goes before you into Galilee, so that when you get to Galilee, you'll find Him already to have been there. Let me tell you, friend, in every one of those tomorrows, you'll find that He has already been there, and He beckons us to the future. We're not to fear the future. We're to claim it in Jesus' name. I want us to claim it in His name for this church. The future belongs to us. We're not going to lose. We're not going broke. The future belongs to us. We just need to claim it in Jesus' name. We need to prepare for it. We need to ask ourselves and God, what is my purpose and plan in your marvelous plan for the future? A.N. Whitehead has a marvelous philosophy. He said that the great men are the men who plant trees whose shade they'll never sit under. And we need a revival of those kind of men in the home and in the church and in the nation who will plant vineyards for others. It would be the easiest thing in the world for us to sit down and accept the status quo with things as they are, with the buildings that we have, with the programs that we have, with the things that we do. That would be the easiest thing in the world to do. But we can't do that for Christ is in the future and He beckons us there. That's why Caleb holds such a fascination for me as this old man got 80 years old and ready to retire. His friend said, take whatever you want in the new land. And he looked to the mountains that had not yet been established and said, give me those mountains. God always calls us to look forward. The builder lifted his old gray head Good friend, in the path I have come, he said, there followeth after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. And the chasm which was not to me, to that fair-haired youth, may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building a bridge for him. And so Jesus says with beckoning hand, come to the future. He always calls us to look forward. The third thing this text suggests is this, that when you're trying to determine what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus, be sure and calculate 
that He never asks you to lay down what is really yours to begin with. The issue of ownership has to be decided somewhere. For now, now watch this and listen to me. Underneath every decision to lay down something to follow Christ is an awareness that we're just releasing something to God that is really His all along. For we are not what we are and we don't do what we do because of the quickness of our minds or the strength of our arms. Your successes and mine and our ability to lay up net worth has been given to us, has come to us, so that when we lay anything down to follow Christ, we're not really giving up something that is ours. We're just releasing back to Him something that's His. And discipleship will never be settled until we understand that. On the legal farm of every automobile title is a line or two that has these words on it. Lean holder, L-I-E-N. I'm familiar with that term. <laughs> if, you've bought, if you've bought your car and paid cash for it, there's nothing on that line on your title. But if you, had to be, if you did like I have done all my life, you had to borrow money for that car, uh, the institution that loans you the money to get it, their name is on that title. Because they want everybody to understand that they own part of the rights of that ownership. And that lien holder on the car title is the official designation that you're not the sole owner of that property. Let me tell you, underneath every understanding of following Jesus must be an awareness that we do not hold the clear title to anything uh, Christ holds prior claim to everything. He's the lien holder, for He has furnished us the wherewithal for everything we've ever done and for all that we are. And when we understand that, it makes following Jesus a little bit easier to do. There is one last truth of this text. And that is this, that when you decide to follow Jesus, be sure you stay the course. Now, I know that I've already been branded a Republican. I'm just using that phrase, for that's a common phrase in Reaganomics. Now, I'm sorry that I, uh, if I offended you and, 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 and talked about Reaganomics, but, but really... It, that's, that's, that's a paraphrase, perhaps, of what Jesus is, is uh, saying when He said, if you put your hand to the plow, don't dare look back. He's saying, if you decide to follow Me, be sure that you stay the course. Harry Emerson Fosdick of the famed uh, Riverside Church in New York City has a classic sermon that will never die entitled, The Power to See It Through. And in this sermon, he makes this statement, the qualities which enable one to have a good start in life 
are not identical with the qualities which see life through to the end. And that's the truth. There's a difference between starting power and staying power. There's a difference between beginning to follow Christ and continuing to follow Christ to the end. I wonder if there's a single person here this morning who could say that my enthusiasm for Jesus Christ has not waned not one time. Stay the course. For it is important that a person find his niche in life and stay with it with perseverance and determination until the pieces fit together. That's true in business, it's true in marriage, and it's true in the Christian enterprise. Robert Morrison was the first missionary to China, and he found opposition from the very beginning. He was forbidden to preach in public. He was driven from town to town. He feared daily arrests. He was buffeted by disease. He was overwhelmed by terrible circumstances, and he went for seven years without a convert. And he wanted time after time to quit, but he just couldn't. After 16 years, he had his book that made him famous, the Chinese Dictionary, and it became the basis of the translation of the Bible into the Chinese language. And he had the determination and the perseverance and the staying power to see it through. Did you notice what Elijah did when he decided to follow Elijah? He went back to kiss his father and mother goodbye, and he took the oxen that he plowed with, and he killed them and made them a sacrifice. And he took the, and he took the yoke that was on the oxen and, and set it on fire and used the fire to burn the sacrifice, the burnt offering. And he consumed the meat and he followed Elijah. And all of that meant was that when he decided to follow Elijah, he burned all the bridges. He was never going back again. When Cortez landed in Veracruz, he took a demolition crew down to the dock where all of their ships were docked. And the rest of the men went up to high ground and watched while they sank every one of their ships. And what he was doing was this. He was cutting off every avenue of escape. He was in Mexico for life. Now Jesus said, if you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. For following Christ, deciding to give our life to Jesus is not something to take lightly. It's the most decisive thing a man can ever decide. Remember that he's calling you forward to the future. 
And He wants you to lay down, to, le- to release that which is all already His to begin with. And then He wants you to set your face to the Jerusalems of life and stay the course. That's what it means when in a moment Jesus will say to you, Come and follow me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are many times that we come face to face, we confront choices that make a radical difference in the way we live. Choices about jobs, choices about churches, choices about friends, choices about privileges, choices about cost. And I pray, Father, that we'll realize today that you're calling us to a new height, to a new level, to a new walk, and that you never want us to remain where we are. And I pray, Father, that you'll give us courage to decisively decide to place our hand in yours and our eyes upon your will and future and move forward without turning back. I pray that we'll begin to follow Jesus now in this place, this moment. For it's in his name I pray and for his sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, would you look here? Our invitations this morning are three. First invitation is for you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. Now in the moment of salvation, in the moment of conversion, in the act of salvation, there is that point of time decision where you come to say, I'll repent of the old life, my way of life, and I'll come and I'll begin to follow Christ. I'll trust Him and Him alone. I know it's not an easy decision. I know there'll be things that will change in your life. I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be easy. But it's going to be wonderful. It'll be, the, it'll be blessed. We want you to come this morning. I want you to come. Our church has prayed for you to come to say, I want to give my heart and life to Jesus Christ. And I want to begin to follow Him today. And I'll trust Him as my Savior. Oh, I want you to do that today. I want you to come to say, I want to trust Jesus, Jesus alone, for my salvation. And then there are other decisions that you must make this morning, and they come into these categories. Some of you may be led of God to place your life in our church. That's a major decision. Someone said, I don't move my membership. I've moved my life, and that's a difficult decision. But do you feel God leading you to do it? Make that clear and decisive choice this morning and let's go to the future. Or maybe you just need to come to say, I followed a far off and I'm at middle age in my life and 
I'm really not committed to Christ, totally committed to Him. I'm just vacillate back and forth, hot and cold, up and down. I want to make a decision this morning, once and for all, to follow Christ. I don't want to have to deal with it any longer. Would you do it? We want you to. From the very first word of the song, we urge you to. While we stand, you come.